Amen. Well, good morning again. Good morning. You guys are still responsive. That's great. Right? How could you not be after singing songs together and, and being able to hear uh, our, our voices together? What a wonderful uh, sound for us together. Uh, it's such an encouragement. Let's pray before we dive into the sermon again this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and hearts to receive your word and that we would live out the truth that we see here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I got a great sermon title for today. I don't know if you noticed it in the bulletin, but I, I gave the, the sermon this title, Dirty Feet Discipling. Okay? Uh, I'm trying to work on being a little creative in my sermon title, so I hope that you in, in, are encouraged by that or at least enjoy it, and maybe it's memorable to you. Um, as we come to this passage in John's Gospel, as we're looking at Jesus' example that he sets for his disciples in this final moment, right before he's going to lead or be led into his death and crucifixion, I think it's really interesting that Jesus shows us a model of what we are to do to follow him as his people in this period of time. Uh, John's gospel has been glorious in its buildup as we have seen uh, Jesus presented as the son of God who has come to rescue sinners, who's been given authority. And now we know from John 13, 1, that the hour is at hand. The hour has come for Jesus to what? To come to depart the world. He will die and go to the cross for us and be with the Father. So right before we see uh, really what's going to take place in chapters 14, 15, 16, all the way into chapter 17 and then 18 with his betrayal, we're going to see these moments where Jesus is teaching his disciples and leading them and encouraging them with the truth of their salvation. So as we lead up to that point, we're going to be going through this through Easter. I just want to really encourage you guys in this time to really sharpen your minds, open your ears and your hearts to what God is going to say to you as we look to Jesus' words for us. How many of you have heard the word discipleship? Okay. Well, that's encouraging. It's probably a normal word that l- exists within uh, the Christian life. Discipleship sometimes is thought of in a variety of ways, right? So when I say the word discipleship, why don't you guys just share with me what comes to your mind right away? Go ahead and blurt them out. Words, answers. Sharing, okay, cool. Guidance, all right. Accountability, ooh, that's a spicy word. I like it, all right. Mentoring, okay. Caring, excellent. Any other words that come to your mind? Discipling. Teaching. Oh, I'm so glad you said that one. I was actually waiting for somebody to say that one. That's good. Right? So caring, mentoring, sharing, following, guidance, all of that has to happen within the light of teaching. Right? We can't do those things without proper teaching in place. It's like one thing I, I care about you. Well, how do you care about me? You know, not just merely through your actions, but also through the words that you're communicating and what you're saying to me. That's, that's an important truth. How many of you have heard somebody say, I was discipled by, and finish that sentence, okay? All right, so here's my my qualm with that kind of language. It comes to some sort of notion of completed, and there is this side of heaven no completion to our discipling. We, as followers of Jesus, are growing in his image until what Philippians 1.6 says, until the day that he comes, He will fulfill the work that he began in us when he returns. So discipleship 
is not merely just a one-time program that we walk through. It is a lifelong journey of following Jesus, which includes a, a few highlights along the way, right? Responding to the gospel, becoming a Christian. And, and then as we become Christians, we do what we, we are baptized in proclamation and profession of our faith. And then the process of sanctification. There is this uh, finality but continuation uh, within this idea, right? The idea is we are sanctified, but we are being sanctified. We are righteous in God. We are glorified in the state of blessed communion with God right now through faith and repentance, but what we are going to be in eternity has not yet come in this hour. So discipling is not just a clean-cut program. It is not something you complete within a, a short period of time. Discipling is a life journey where we are following Jesus. Discipleship is the rhythm of life where we are together showing each other Christ. If you want to think of discipleship, that's a really good definition for us. Discipleship is where we spend life together showing each other Jesus. So discipleship is knowing and doing. It is not merely our intellect, it is our action. And there are ex expectations we set within our discipling, right? And maybe they're broad, maybe they're, they've been uncategorized, but the point I want to get to this morning is this, is that discipling isn't easy work. Following Jesus isn't easy. It's dirty. It's tough. As we see this passage in John 13, I think the main argument of John 13 is this, is that discipling is about serving God and others like Jesus. Discipling is about serving God and others like Jesus. I think there are two sections here in John 13, verses 1 through 20. The first is in verses 1 through 11. And what that highlights for us is that we often misunderstand the essentials about following Jesus. We often misunderstand the essentials of following Jesus, okay? So that's point number one for you, verses 1 through 11. The second point that we're going to walk through this morning is that if we are to follow Jesus, we must serve like him. And we see that in verses 12 through 20. So while we misunderstand, we must follow. Misunderstand, follow. So let's look at this first section. We often misunderstand the essentials about following Jesus. John 13 sets for us the, the final chapter of John's gospel, where he's going to be spending uh, the next eight chapters focusing in on the last moments of Jesus' life. He's going to focus in on the last moments of Jesus' life. We've gone from days now into moments where we are seeing Jesus with his disciples. In verses 1 through 3, we really see the setting of this scene. It says in, in verse 1, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So as we come to the end of the Gospel of John here and to these final moments, there's a couple of things just to highlight. So again, what is this? This is right before the Passover festival. This is where the Passover represents a meal where God's people would remember how he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians and brought them into a relationship with him. Right? So he rescued them. 
He covered over their sin, and he brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus so that he could dwell with his people and they could worship him. So the Passover remembers that work where the blood was spilt upon the doorpost to cover over the people. So the Passover has come. Jesus knows that it's the end. But John 13.1 has this really interesting note that no other gospel has. It's this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Everything we're going to see from John 13 onward now is not only going to be a representation of the fulfillment of the Passover, but a fulfillment of God's love toward his people. What is driving Jesus to the Passover scene? His love and care for his people. He loved them, what? To the very end. But this is also setting up for us a, a comparison where we could see the person of Jesus compared to Simon and particularly even Satan in this scene. So in verse 2, as we come to the supper, we hear this note right from John that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas this idea to betray Jesus. So while Jesus loves his people, we see in, in Judas someone who betrays God, someone who loves God and someone betrays God. And Jesus, in verse 3, it tells us, knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Jesus knew what was about to happen. This scene was not a surprise to him. Everything that God had been working had come to this moment. And so what happens here next is we see Jesus get down on his knees to serve his disciples. Verse 4, so he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet to dry them with the towel tied around them. So initially we see that Jesus starts doing this action. Now, why was the foot washing so significant? That might be a question that comes to your mind. Why would it be so significant that Jesus would get down on his knees, take out his outer clothing, and take the form of a servant to serve his people. Well, that's exactly the heart of it, right? Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in equality with God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, right? So Jesus humbled himself to serve his disciples. It was significant because this act of foot washing was meant for people who were considered kind of second-class citizens. As you would come into a place, the the people who would be washing your feet were not the masters of the household. They were the servants of the household. So Jesus comes in and does what the servants should be doing. The roads in Jerusalem and Israel at this time, they weren't paved like our roads are now. Now, we know that the quality of pavement can crumble at times, right? Like our parking lot is a great sign of that, right? There are portions that are just crumbling here and there, right? So that road, that part of the parking lot can be annoying, right? When you're trying to drive through and you get the teeth rattling as you're driving. Now, these were nothing like even the dirt roads that we have today. Rachel and I live on a dirt road, maybe one of the only ones in town still. Well, there's a few more in in Lebanon than there were in Colchester, but um, we live on a dirt road, and it's a nice road, but there are portions of the year, especially after the winter time, and the plow trucks have come through, that the, the potholes become pretty significant, right? So 
there are times where you drive through that and, again, your teeth rattle. But the roads in the day of Jesus weren't paved and they weren't pretty and they were for all sorts of different things. Livestock would travel these roads. There were no rest stops along the way. You picking up what I'm putting down, right? Animals, right? If you've been behind a horse on the airline trail and you see the little piles, you know what I'm talking about, right? These roads weren't pretty, okay? Not only animal feces, human feces along the way. And let's talk about shoes for a moment, ladies. Okay? The, the people of the first century did not have closed-toe shoes. I know many of you are really looking forward to sandal season, but this was the normal shoe wear for the people, open-toed, exposed shoe, just something to basically cover the bottom of your foot. Cleaning feet being done by servants as people would come into these households, essentially what Jesus was doing is he's taking his outer clothing off, bending down to serve them and wash their feet, he's doing something that is really kind of, in one way, gross but necessary for these people. And within these first couple of verses, as Jesus is doing this act, we don't hear any testimonies about how the disciples are like responding to this. But what we do get is the implication that he gets to some point in verse 6 where he comes around to Peter. I, I don't think Peter was the, the first one to receive this act, but the other disciples are, are letting this happen. It wouldn't have been an unordinary occurrence for them as they came to a meal. But they come to this, and then Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter goes, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing right now, you, you don't realize, but afterward you will understand. And then Peter responds with a lot of wisdom right here, right? He goes, you'll never wash my feet, right? So he sees what Jesus is doing. He doesn't like the aspect that Jesus is their master, their Lord, their teacher, and that he's stooping himself down to the form of a servant to come and wash their feet. And he looks at that and says, Jesus, I'm not going to let you do that to me. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand about what I'm doing right now. And then as he replies with, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus is merciful towards Peter. And he says to him, Peter, if, you, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, guys, this is a, a picture of Jesus proclaiming what he's going to do in the gospel story through this scene. Think about Jesus' words here. These were precise words. If I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. This isn't just about foot washing. This is going to be about what takes place in Jesus' crucifixion. If I don't wash you through the atoning, cleansing blood of the Son, you will have no part with me. Now, Jesus is saying this in a veiled way through this statement to Peter. And Peter is hearing what he's saying, and he at least understands that he wants to be with Jesus. Right? Master, teacher, Lord, I want to be with you. So what does he say in response? He goes from rejection to, Jesus, you can't just wash my feet now. I need you to wash all of me, right? <laughs> Jesus, Peter is the perfect example of us as we follow Jesus, right? We go from these moments where we're like, I don't want any of that. That's hard. Discipline is tough. I don't want anybody to hold me accountable. I don't want to walk into this. This is, this is confusing and chaotic. And I don't like it. 
to then hearing that it's good for us and going, give me all of it, right? (laughs) We're just like Peter in this scene. But Peter, as he says this, he goes, go on, like, wash not only my feet, but my hands and my heads. And, And Jesus responds by saying, one who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. He's, he's reassuring Peter. He's saying, hey, Peter, you don't, you don't need me to wash all of you right now. Just Essentially, I, I feel like Jesus is saying in this moment, Peter, just let me wash your feet. Right? When we've had that frustrated moment with our friends as we're communicating with them, trying to get them to get the point, it's like, hey, this is it. <laughs> so Jesus says, Peter, you don't need to be completely washed because the, the one who has his feet washed is completely clean. But then he ends with this. He says, you are clean, but not all of you. As Jesus is saying these words, pointing to the picture of what he's going to do in cleansing his people. And then he says to this group right here, not all of you are clean. Remember John 13, verse 2. The devil had done what? Put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Now, there's the note, but then verse 3 tells us the reality. The reality is what? That Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And that's actually what John 13, 11 tells us. John gives us this, this parenthetical note and says, he knew who would betray him, and this is why he said, not all of you are clean. He knew his betrayal was coming. But he knew that by this betrayal, he would cleanse his people. So the thing that we, we see in this passage is that we often do misunderstand the essentials. The essentials of the gospel, the essentials of following Jesus, first and foremost, we must recognize that we are cleansed by Jesus alone. Our right standing with God is through Jesus' work. It is through his cleansing work, through his atoning blood that would cover us, as we'll sing later today, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our atonement, our cleansing, our right standing with God is through his work alone. But we are indeed often like Peter, where we reject what God has in front of us as we follow him, or we take on too much of it, right? Has this been like your discipling journey? Have you been in points of your life where you feel like you're struggling with your spiritual disciplines and maybe your heart's hardened toward the idea of like regularly sitting down, reading the word, praying, developing a rhythm there, or even being accountable to other Christians? Has anybody else felt like that before? I've felt like that, right? Where there's a sense of rejection of like, God, this is good for me, but I don't really want this right now. Have you, have you been there, brothers and sisters? But then we can also, on the other end of that, approach our discipling like, I'm going to commit to everything and let me just pile it on right now. My, my calendar is full with every single day of the week being something that I'm doing within the church or with other Christians, and it feels like I'm constantly swimming with my head just barely poking out of the water. There is too little and there is too much. But notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't talk about programmatics with Peter. He talks about his relationship with Peter and specifically how Peter is to trust him. He doesn't say, hey, do it this way. He says, Peter, trust me. Trust me. Walk with me. 
be with me. Discipling isn't so much about our activities as it is about our knowing God and being known by him and opening up our lives to others to say, here's here's how Christ is at work within me. Here's what his word says. Will you walk with me too? It's an invitation for our response. So while we misunderstand, we must see the second part of this passage tells us that if we're to follow Jesus, we must serve like him. Thank goodness Jesus gave some clarification to the disciples here. Verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus teaches them what he has done. I love the way he, he does this with them. Right? He, he puts his outer cloak back on, he reclines at the table, and he goes, so you guys get it? Right? He's got like this master teaching moment. Right? He's just about to drop it on them and be like, all right, do you understand? Interestingly enough, this does happen throughout John's gospel, but this is one of the most emphasized ways that we see Jesus interacting with his disciples about something he's done for them and taught them in this exact moment. Do you understand what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord. You learn from me and you follow me. And you are right about those things. So if I am indeed your Lord, and I am indeed your teacher, and I have done this, then you ought to also do this. I've given you example. Follow me. Within this, we see the call to follow Jesus by his example. But I think there's something to clarify here, too. Jesus is not setting up an ordinance in foot washing here. Okay, so how many of you guys have heard of the ordinances of the church? Is that familiar language to you? Okay, I see the seminarian shaking her head. Yes, 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 yes. Good job, good job. Ethan, good job, good job. So ordinances are words which represent practices that are official within the church's capacity. That's like the most simplistic definition that I can give to it. What are, if we were to ask you right now, what are the ordinances of the church? What comes to your mind? Oh, yeah, buddy, baptism. Mm -hmm. The Lord's Supper, amen. Okay, who grew up in Catholicism? Okay, who remembers the ordinances of Catholicism? There's more than two in Catholicism. There's like seven. Confession, marriage, yep. Last rites, yeah. First communion, penance, confirmation. Okay, maybe there's like 26 million of them. <laughs> I always got to take my moment. <laughs> See, the, the thing that they're putting within their practices, it comes down to this. There are things that Jesus has instituted for the church to be regular practices within the church. Okay? So there are particularly within 
what we call in the Protestant circles two ordinances that we recognize as absolutely essential to the practices of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some have taken this passage here and added in foot washing to be a necessary, mandated, commanded practice for the church. I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said to these disciples, I've given you example, just as I have done for you, you should also have done for me. Right? This is not the same kind of language he's using with the Lord's Supper, and even the same language of command that he's giving within baptism specifically. He is giving us an example to follow here. I think that's why the Christian Standard Bible does a great job translating this and highlighting, I, I have given you an example of what you are to do. What's that? To serve one another, right? And he gets into this with what he says in verse 16 and 17. The servant is not greater than the master, and the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So at the heart of following Jesus is serving other people, right? The greatest commandments can be summarized in what, guys? The two greatest commandments. Love God, love others, right? Um, that's how Jesus summarized all of the Ten Commandments to uh, the, the Pharisees that were asking him that question. Love God, love others. At the heart of following Jesus is serving other people. But notice how he talks about the servant and the master here. What makes a good leader? It's not somebody who has the acclaim, not somebody who is looking at it for recognition, not, look, not somebody who is hungry for a position, not somebody who wants to be recognized. What makes a good leader in Jesus' eyes is someone who will serve. What does Jesus come to do? He's come to serve. He's come to serve his people. Good leaders are those who serve God's people. Followers of Jesus are called to serve one another. So following Jesus isn't particularly always about me, myself, and I, but maybe more about we. How can we grow together in Christ? There is a communal aspect to following Jesus. We belong in a community with God. We belong to one another. We are called to serve, to follow his example. So how can we serve? Well, from church to church, it's a bit different in serving capacities, right? Um, it, there are a few ways that I could highlight service within our church body right now. So one of them would be, I, I can highlight three areas of need within our, uh, the service of our church body, how we can love others and serve them well. Maybe not in necessarily foot washing, but in helping meeting needs. So, hey, Jacob, how are you, man? You're up in the, the balcony, bleacher creature, the only one today. He's got that yellow cap on. Why don't you stand up, stand up, stand up. Hey, Jacob is our tech guy. If you, yeah, give us that big smile. There we go. Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. Uh, man, I love your shirt. You look good today. <laughs> Jacob serves on our, our te- as our tech team lead here. There are needs within our tech team. We're going to have a couple of our main staples. The, the Martin boys are going to Word of Life to serve in a summer camp this, this summer. But that, mean, that, that means that there's a void. We need people to serve in that ministry team. Okay. Where's Brittany? Brittany, where are you at? Hey, you're in a service. Praise the Lord. Okay. I'm going to highlight that with the fact that Brittany is one of our, our kids' ministry directors. Brittany, stand up for everybody. Hello. 
Hello. Look at her nice new haircut. Doesn't she look great? Yeah. Uh, Brittany, you need kids ministry volunteers, don't you? Always. Yes. If you haven't realized, if you, ha- you will realize after service today when the kids go downstairs for snack, there's a lot of them. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So we need desperately people to serve in kids ministry. Now, this doesn't mean that it's all going to be fun and games, though kids ministry usually does have fun and games. It means that we're going to have to serve in, in areas that maybe we just aren't super passionate about. Maybe you're not a kid person, but we still need kids volunteers. So there's another way. Heather, how are you? Hi. Come on, stand up. Oh, yes. I'm taking great joy at just calling people out this morning. Heather is on our hospitality team. She is our hospitality guru. She is also what I like to call the Leslie Nope of the church. Super organized, just very on top of her stuff. Heather, you've been serving in hospitality for a year now. I was just reminded of that as I was thinking about our leadership team meeting. Uh, we, we basically asked Heather if she would volunteer in that meeting. It was more volunteering than it was volunteering. Uh, and she has just flourished in that capacity. Heather, you need people in, on the hospitality team, right? So what are some of the things that your hospitality team does? Leslie, nope. Right? <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Um, it, great ways to serve our church body there. Guys, service doesn't always have to be complicated. What Jesus did in his example in John 13 wasn't a complicated or unordinary thing. It was an ordinary experience for these disciples as they came to meals. These teams represent ordinary ways that we get to serve one another through the actual needs, needs of our church body. Okay, so these are three areas that I want to especially highlight for our church this morning where you can serve. Now, what is serving about? Is it about doing it with joy? Yes, we hope that you enjoy that you serve in the area that you're, you're in. But it's, it's also about recognizing faithfulness. Right? There are going to be ministries where we just need more bodies than other teams. Uh, so, especially kids ministry, that's one of the areas that we, we always need bodies and people uh, that are willing and able to serve in that capacity. So, there are opportunities that are in front of us to follow Jesus' example by serving one another. Why do we do this? Not necessarily so that we can say, look at me, I'm a kids ministry rock star. Okay? Or to say, I'm a tech team rock star, a hospitality rock star. But to say, I love my church body, my family here of fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to serve them. The servant is not greater than his master, and the master showed us the way. To get down, to get dirty, to take off his robe, to wash some feet. So serving is a call that's not just for leaders, it's a call for Christians. Somebody recently shared with me that they heard it said in a sermon that no one is, is above scrubbing toilets. Or, I think, was that Gail? It was, I think it was Gail in our small group. Um, She's not here today, but I I thought, what a wonderful illustration to us. Nobody is above scrubbing toilets. The idea is is that Jesus, as Jesus has come to serve, so we also are to follow his example in serving. So while discipling does involve 
knowing the truths about God's Word, while it does involve things like participating in education hour and in small groups, discipling isn't just about what we know, it's about doing what we know together. How do we do that? We've got to get, get dirty. The end of this passage is really interesting because in light of all of this, Jesus says that this teaching is not just a moment of his teaching, but a moment of fulfillment. Look at verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you believe in me. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I receive or or anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. I'm going to show you a really cool literary structure. It's called an inclusio, okay? An inclusio, which is also just a fancy way of sandwiching, okay? So you think of a sandwich, all right? How do we make a sandwich, guys? What are we going to have? Bread. What kind of sandwich are we making? Are we making PB&J or are we making something meaty? Meat. Good choice, good choice. Okay, so you got to have your bread and you got to have the stuff that's in the middle of the bread, right? Now, if you choose peanut butter and jelly, that is a classic, well done, great choice. If you're not a peanut butter and jelly fan, you're just a peanut butter fan, we're praying for you. If you're just a jelly person, we're really praying for you. Um, but maybe you're a meat person or like a, I like a BLT. That is like one of my favorite go-to sandwiches. I mean, it's got bacon, right? It's, it's got to be good. Nonetheless, the idea of the sandwich is you got the bread on the outside, and what's in the middle is the content, right? Look at John 13, guys. What's the bread? Verses 1 through 3, okay? Where, what does Jesus say there? The hour's come. He has loved his own to the end. He tells them that he's going to go back to God. Even in the middle of this section where Jesus is talking to Peter and saying, You don't understand what I'm doing just yet. The other end of this is verses 18 through 20. That's the other piece of the bread. So while Jesus is showing his example in verses 1 through 3, in verses 18 through 20 is telling us that this is not just some sort of teaching moment. It is indeed a fulfillment moment. He does what? He fulfills it right in the middle. He's coming to cleanse. He's coming to deliver. Interesting enough, he, he quotes... Psalm 41, verse 9. In that passage, the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Let me talk to you about some redemptive language in the Bible. Psalm 41 is a psalm of David. David is under attack from those that are oppressing him. And as he writes that psalm, it's a psalm of lament crying out to God, saying that he is righteously suffering for God on his behalf as his servant. He actually looks to the person of Moses and even, uh, yeah, even Joshua after him to be examples of those that are the righteous sufferers. But I think what's really interesting about this particular passage is the language that comes in, he has raised his heel against me. Why would that be significant in redemptive language? Genesis. Genesis 3.15. Flip your Bible there real quick. Genesis 
The serpent has just deceived Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God. God is now delivering the consequences of their rebellion to them. And in verse 15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Go back to John 13. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. What was in verse 2? Satan had put it in Judas's heart to betray him. Was it not just too long ago that we saw Jesus pass the bread to the one who would betray him? The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Judas has come as the fulfillment of not only the promise of Psalm 41, but also what's highlighted in Genesis 3. The heel will be struck, but that, that, that one that has been struck will crush the head of the serpent. This passage is full of redemptive language. Redemptive language that points us to the reality that Jesus will be the one who cleanses his people. How does he cleanse his people? By delivering the final blow to the enemy of sin. He can only do that through what? Through his substitutionary death for us. That's why he says in verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. As we get to the later chapters of John's gospel, we're going to see the realization of these promises from, the disciple, or from God to the disciples realized. That's going to be a glorious moment for us. But what we learn today is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to get dirty, which means that Though we may misunderstand the essentials sometimes, we must follow Jesus by serving like him. Thank God that he has come to serve us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage. Thank you that you have come to serve us. I pray now as we think about serving our church body and serving in light of Jesus' example, God, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but rather that we would take joy in serving others, that we would fulfill the great commandments, that we would do so for your glory and for your honor, and that we would do it together. In Jesus' name, amen. If this is your first time at Hebron Church of Hope, we like to pray together.